Hello! Welcome to the World is Falling Apart edition of Sleep Money, your guide to the business and finance news of a week, which seems to have lasted for a few decades at least. At least. This has been one hell of a week. I am Felix Salmon of Axios. I'm here in Brooklyn with Anna Shemansky of Breaking Views. Hello. I am also on the line with Emily Peck of HuffPost. Hello. From a undisclosed location somewhere in Westchester. But most excitingly, I'm also here with Ben Hubbard in Beirut, Lebanon. Hi, Ben. Hello. You are, Ben, the New York Times bureau chief in Beirut? Yes. And you have written a book. It is called? MBS, The Rise to Power of Mohammed bin Salman. And I can definitely recommend this book. It is a fantastic book. This man is the most important and interesting head of state in the world, kind of, definitely in the top five. Um, But he's come out of nowhere to seize just astonishing amounts of power. We are going to go back to either 150 years ago or maybe six days ago when um, oil prices went crazy. We are going to talk about the coronavirus and its effects on the global economy. We're going to talk about what on earth is it like to have to work from home for possibly months on end. We're going to talk about all manner of stuff coming up on Slate Money. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. So there's absolutely no way that we are going to be able to cover everything that has gone on even in the last five minutes, let alone the last week, because it has been a week of complete crazy. But we should at least cover some of the um, huge, big headlines. Um, Anna, where where to even start? That's a very good question. I mean, I think... So this has been quite a week. We've seen significant volatility and we've seen significant drops. You know, we, we've now had multiple times in which the S&P has fallen so far that circuit breakers were actually released. So there had to be a pause in trading. So that's that's 7% in the space of like, normally in the first five minutes of, right. of trading because something has happened overnight, like Donald Trump went on the telly and freaked the entire planet out. Yes. Yeah, exactly. So we're seeing these <laughs> massive sell-offs. And then I think on Thursday, you also had the Fed come in and say that they were going to be injecting $1.5 trillion. 
so that you have additional liquidity in the short-term funding market. So, so that yes, yeah, so there's a bunch of liquid. The Fed is doing monetary policy. We're almost certainly going to get a massive rate cut on Wednesday when they meet. They're doing clever things in the repo market to try and keep liquidity going. The Treasury market was showing signs of seizing up. Um, also, like just to sort of zoom back a bit, we had Trump announcing basically that no one who isn't an American is allowed to enter America if they've set foot in continental Europe at any point in the past 14 days, which um, is his way of basically painting the virus as a foreign invader right. and making this like a us versus them thing. And that went down about as well as you would expect it to do. I think the um, the big picture here and it's something that I started thinking about when you sent your newsletter, Felix. But basically, to fight this virus and this pandemic, you have to have an economic slowdown. You have to kind of do a recession to get the coronavirus contained because basically you have to do all this social distancing. Everyone has to stay home under self-quarantine. People shouldn't be out at big events. You see all these events getting canceled, all these gatherings getting canceled, businesses aren't seeing any business, that all has to happen. And that all necessarily is tanking the economy. I, th I, like, well, to think, I like to think of it as like chemotherapy for the economy in a way. Like yes. you have to kind of kill various bits of the economy, including, um, you know, a large chunk of the travel sector, a large chunk of the service sector, um, in order to try and get a grip on the spread of the virus. Well, I mean, I think just... Right. Yeah, I mean, I think... The, the big issue here, which is often the issue in panics, is uncertainty. And in this case in particular, it's very uncertain because we we really haven't had a type of crisis where people have just stopped going out. Like, that is actually something new. And people in the market don't actually know what is going to happen. Now, I... I right. And, and just to be clear about this, the market is a symptom. It doesn't matter. Like, we shouldn't be worrying about the market. We should be worrying about... The spread of the virus. That's the number one thing right. to worry about. Of course. So we have this like we have this purposeful kind of economic slowdown. And what's needed now is for leaders and governments to step in and simultaneously fight this public health crisis and mitigate the effects of the slowdown. The problem is most of the leaders around the world, especially in our country, do not seem up for that. And it stands in contrast. It's not like we haven't seen this. I think, you know, the, the Chinese did a very bad job at the beginning and then turned around and started doing a very good right. job. The Koreans did a very good job. The Italians are taking this super seriously. And, you know, it remains to be seen just how effective they're going to be. And they're having a very hard time of it right now. But they seem at least right now to be doing more or less the right thing. The messaging even i mean i hate to admit this because i can't stand the guy but the me even the messaging from boris johnson <laughs> on thursday was like he was like this is going to be tough and you all need to stay at home and this kind of thing like it's not like it's impossible for politicians to do this but there are certain politicians including the president of brazil who was calling the virus a hoax and um now may or may not have come down with it himself um and certainly the president of the United States, who who don't seem to be constitutionally um, capable of really reacting in that kind of a way. And I'm actually super interested to have Ben here, because when you look in your neck of the woods at sort of the Arab world, how how are politicians reacting there? Oh, there's this kind of a mix of confusion and statements. And I mean, it's pretty it's pretty terrifying around here. I mean, the Arab world's a broad place with a lot of diversity, but 
I mean, the biggest concern for me is that you have a number of, you know, when you look at what this region has been through since 2011, whether it was sort of the aftermath of the Arab Spring, civil war in Syria, rise of ISIS, destruction of ISIS, you know, war in Yemen. We have so many states that are just basically either failed or barely getting by. And my big fear is that if corona really gets into one of these places, there's going to be almost no system that can restrain it. So if you have corona take off in parts of Syria where the government is basically absent or parts of Iraq that were destroyed and, you know, the fight to get rid of ISIS or Yemen, which has been largely destroyed by Saudi Arabia and its allies, or at least parts of the country, you know, these are not countries that have large medical sectors that are standing that are going to be able to act quickly on, a, you know, to do something about a, a new phenomenon like this. And and you have to assume that like the standard of immunosuppression in your typical refugee camp is not that great and that like, you know, all you need is one person and things can get very bad very quickly. Yeah, and you have obviously, you know, thanks to the Syrian civil war, you have huge refugee populations in Lebanon, in Jordan, in southern Turkey. And, uh, you know, there's the medical care there is always poor. So then if you get a virus that goes in, I mean, these are people that are crammed in tents that are lining up to get water, to get food in some places. And so these, these things are going to spread uh, incredibly easily. Do we know yet um, how many cases are in the Middle East right now? Is there any reliable testing or reporting there? Um, yeah, I mean, the various countries have put out, you know, have put out numbers. The Saudis have reported some cases, the Egyptians, the Lebanese, um, the, you know, yeah, Iran, definitely. There's the, you know, there's. Around. Always some concern that these countries either don't really know how many cases they have because the reporting is so bad or that they could just be lying about it. You know, they could be playing it down because it's bad for their image or it makes the leaders look bad. And, you know, so I don't think we have a, you know, a perfect view of, of where it is in the region. But, uh, you know, it's a major concern. I'm curious, uh, Felix and Anna, what you think. I was um, talking to Jason Furman this morning and he said he thinks the downturn from coronavirus could be worse than the financial crisis. What do you guys think about that? I disagree with that, to be perfectly honest. I obviously could be 100% wrong, but once I think there is some type of reasonable policy reaction in the United States from the kind of probably some coordination between the Trump administration, Congress, and the Fed, and that people have a sense of, okay, we have we know in general about how long this might last, looking at what happened in China and South Korea. I think you'll see the markets calm down. Because Well, I mean, again, like let's let's separate no, no, but, these two. When he says downturn, like presumably he's saying economic. Right, downturn. but that's what I mean. But, but so, I, no, so, but like, I, I was, so so let's try and answer this question without talking about the markets just okay, for a minute. Okay, right. So if you're if you're thinking about businesses and because what can really cause a significant economic downturn is obviously if you start to have lots of layoffs and then people also are on spending and then that's a bad cycle. Now, if people think this is probably going to be a limited period of time where we're going to have this significant drop in demand, you probably aren't going to have a lot of companies lay people off because it's very expensive to rehire them if they think this is going to be short term. What's much more likely is that you'll have a lot of companies that will simply take a hit in profits. You're going to have not to go back to the markets, but you're, you you will have like a bad earnings period, right? So, but so what's the t what's that period of time? Like, if I'm say Disney theme parks and I need to shut down my theme parks for a, for X amount, like what is X such that um, it actually makes sense for me to lay off the workers and then rehire them rather than to just keep on paying them while they're closed? How long? How long is is short term enough for me to be able to say, well? 
I'll probably just keep on paying them. I think it obviously depends on the industry. It depends on, you know, the, the company itself. But I think if people think this is going to be a one or two quarter event, you're not going to lay a lot of people off. If you think, wow, this could last for the next year, you know, then or, or people think we really have no idea, we can't get a handle on this, then, yes, you could see a really significant economic downturn. But yeah, I, and that's where I think right now the the one like tiny glint of hope is that we did see in both China and Korea um, a pretty rapid decrease in new cases once they got a handle on it. Now, I am not at all optimistic that we're going to see that kind of rapid decrease in either the in Italy or the US or Spain, um, but at least we can see that it's possible and that even if it doesn't decrease as rapidly as that and doesn't go down in like a week or two um the idea that it can go down in sort of three or four months right. and and like do it within the next couple of quarters and we could have a really bad recession which only lasts for two quarters and, it, and then and then you get a bounce back is still possible yeah and honestly i mean i was looking at s&p reports this week saying like even if you had something that was close to, you know, the 1918 flu, you still probably wouldn't see a severely significant recession in the United States. So I think the comparisons with the with 2008, I think, are a little overdone. The other thing to note is that there are a whole bunch of sectors which at one point would have been much more hit than they are now in, in a world of massively decreased mobility, including podcasting you know we can we can podcast remotely now because technology is amazing and a bunch of other people the ability to work remotely now assuming the internet keeps on working which i think everyone assumes it will um is you know there's a huge number of people who cannot um take advantage of that but equally there's an almost unprecedented number of people who can yes i i think that that's very true and another thing that is really important is the united states went into this crisis in a really good economic position and that matters because it means that a lot of companies a lot of people have a lot more kind of buffers you say, than they would have in 2008 when a lot of what people thought were their buffers were, were kind of phantom. I don't know. I, I feel like, yes, more people can do business online. You can buy stuff now a lot online. You can do your work a lot online. If if there's three months where people aren't going outside to stores or events or restaurants, a lot of businesses will fail and like they won't come back. And this will sort of push industries that were like, yeah, last time, it was homeowners that didn't have, um, you know, they didn't have the the cushion that they thought they had. But now it's like these industries that were already kind of fragile and sort of falling apart will be pushed faster to do so. And also, I feel like three or four months where commerce and consumption is is like kind of ground to a halt in the United States is is pretty serious. And I, I don't, I mean, who can say if it'll be like. 08, and you guys are probably right that it wouldn't be as severe, but right now it feels like it could be. And then when you hear about how China and South Korea have contained the virus versus what's being done here, I mean, like there was an episode of The Daily this week where they described um, what China did, which is basically like people didn't quarantine at home. Once they thought they might be sick or were diagnosed with the virus, they were, you know, brought into 
hospitals where they're quarantined there because that they were finding that the disease spread when you um, quarantine with family. And I just can't imagine the U.S. ever getting it together to do that. Like, I just don't see yeah, that kind of coordination here. It's just not There's possible. definitely a massive potential downside here. And like, just when you say that a bunch of businesses will close because they, you know, can't afford three months of losses, I, I feel like we like that is just one of those huge unknowns um right my 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 kind of i have this gut feeling that like if you wind up in an italy type situation where basically all storefronts and shops and retail closes down except for groceries and pharmacies um then it's going to be interesting to see what happens to at, at the landlord level, right? I mean, the idea is that a bunch of these businesses just won't be able to pay rent for those months. But does mm. it make sense for the landlords to even demand rent for those months? Because if they evict those tenants, it's not like there's going to be a huge line of other people coming in and wanting to start renting that storefront later, right? I think you could easily see a bunch of rent forgiveness at the landlord level just because they would prefer to see those businesses stay than trying to deal with like a whole bunch of empty storefronts. It's, you know, it's very, very hard to game these things out. Um, and all we know for sure is that the error bars on any forecasts right now are just absolutely enormous. And I mean, I will agree with you that they're probably bigger on the downside than they are on the upside. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday. I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather. Now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Should we talk about yeah. what happened with oil? Because yes. I, I feel like <laughs> yes, people are please. doing that. But no, I mean, but this is this is the other thing. Like There has been an absolutely enormous, world-shaking shock. I did a quick back-of-the-envelope calculation for my newsletter this week that 20 trillion dollars of um value has been wiped off the value of the world's oil reserves and basically overnight um because vladimir putin and mbs the crown prince of saudi arabia basically couldn't agree with each other and that the the natural sort of repercussions of that are just so enormous that it's kind of crazy that we're not all talking about that but of course like the thing we are all talking about is even bigger but we have the man who can explain this all to us which i'm super happy about um so let's start ben with a very simple question like what the hell happened in switzerland what went wrong well, I think, let me first give a little bit of context. I mean, you know, MBS came to power in 2015 and the, the low oil price was a huge problem for him. I mean, this was a guy who came to power at, or 
came out of the shadows to sort of begin his rise at age 29. He has huge plans. He wants to revolutionize the kingdom, diversify the the sources of income, do all these great things, and he needs money. When you say he was struggling with a low oil price in 2015, that low oil price was like 60 or 70, right? Right, yeah. And now we're, you know, at half of that. So one of the things that he does to kind of deal with this is he, he comes to, you know, he comes to basically an agreement with Russia where Russia becomes kind of an unofficial member of OPEC where they decide on, you know, they decide on production levels to try to keep the price up. And this works well for a number of years. And MBS sort of has this kind of bromance with Vladimir Putin, you know, famously after the killing of Jamal Khashoggi, the Saudi, Saudi writer who was, uh, you know, murdered in Istanbul in 2018, they run into each other at the G20. They have this high five, that sort of video of this high five that goes viral. And, you know, it appeared to be this very close relationship. And then we get into, you know, starting last month, they, they, they get again into talks about what they're going to do on production cuts to try to keep the price up. And the Russians balk. They resist. They say, no, we're not quite sure about this. MBS keeps pushing. The Saudis keep pushing. No, we need to do this to keep the price up. Finally, the Russians say no. And uh, MBS just basically pushes back and says, okay, fine. You don't want production cuts. We're going to up production and we're going to like crash the price, which is exactly what happened. I'm curious your thoughts on how the U.S. fits in here, because it seems like U.S. shale producers play a really big role in terms of what Russia is thinking. And then also the relationship between the Saudis and the U.S. really affects what MBS is doing. I mean, this has been a major sort of long-term threat to Saudi Arabia. I mean, Saudi Arabia, since 1945, you know, we had President Roosevelt went to see, went to see King Abdulaziz, MBS's grandfather, in 1945 when the U.S. during World War II sort of realized, wow, this oil stuff, we're going to need a lot of it. And where are we going to get it? We're going to get it from this sort of strange, you know, kingdom on the other side of the world. And so this was sort of the birth of the Saudi-American relationship. And the Saudis, you know, they've always known that even though their culture is different and their society is different and a lot of th- things that they do sort of rankle the United States, they've always known that the, you know, the U.S. needs their oil and they're going to work on getting it. The rise of shale sort of questioned that because all of a sudden the U.S. is producing a lot more oil than it used to. It's much less dependent on Saudi oil. And, uh, you know, this, this was sort of one of these long-term issues that was going to gradually erode the importance of Saudi Arabia for the United States. So this, you know, for the Saudis, this could be, you know, this could help them in a way if they can really knock the wind out of shale production in the United States and, you know, bring themselves back onto the market as players that you have to deal with and that you can't get around. That's, that's good for them in the long run. And the one thing that I really get from your book is the MBS, he's just, he, he, he kind of f- thinks of himself as, as a sort of Alexander the Great type figure. He's a maximalist. He just does the biggest and strongest and most aggressive and craziest things like at any given point he kind of takes i love this you you described the saudi air force as being decorative until he came along and then he suddenly (laughs) just starts bombing yemen or he you know um arrests his his uncle mbn and or anyone else he he's put his own mother under house arrest you know he decides to build a half a trillion dollar city on the, in the middle of the desert. For Neom. The, Neom. Like, he's just, all he wants to do is very, very big, grand, bold. What, like, he's, he's a, it's a little bit like Trump in that way. Like, give him a range of choices and all, he'll always take the most extreme one. Is that is that fair to say? Oh, yeah. he's There's not much evidence that he's into half measures. I mean, this is, you know, I mean, we probably all know 20-year-olds, and I think even myself, if I look back to my 20s, I probably spent a certain amount of time thinking that I was an undiscovered genius and sort of not understanding why the world hadn't realized how smart I was. 
the difference is that this guy, his father is a king, which means that he can basically get you know close to unlimited power. And he happens to be the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, which means he has an almost unlimited budget. And so, you know, you sort of take those dreams or those ambitions that sort of a very ambitious 29-year-old or someone in their early 30s would have, and you turbocharge them. And so we've just seen again and again, this guy just does not hesitate to take the most dramatic sort of action possible, launches these massive initiatives that, you know, send everybody sort of scrambling and trying to figure out, if, is this even possible? How possible is it? How unrealistic it is? And We've just seen this again and again. And, uh, you know, the, the sort of surprising thing about this whole oil shock now is that, you know, the, the killing of Jamal Khashoggi at the end of 2018 was such a major blow to Saudi credibility. And it came, it came on the heels of a number of other things. I mean, after, you know, we'd had the Yemen war that had been going on and that had been increasingly angering parts of the U.S. government that, you know, we had sold all these weapons to the Saudis, basically thinking they were never going to use them. And then they go get involved in this huge quagmire. You had the this bizarre episode of the kidnapping of Saad Hariri, the president of Lebanon, to try to you know, get him to resign as prime minister to change the politics here. You had the lockup at the Ritz-Carlton where he threw a few hundred princes and businessmen in a luxury hotel and tried to take their money away. I mean, just craziness after craziness. And then you have the murder of Jamal Khashoggi. And for a lot of people that, I mean, it was such a major blow to Saudi's credibility and to his standing that, you know, you really thought you could get away with this. And he pushed through. He basically said, I'm not going to compromise and we're going to you know, put some people on trial and Trump stood up for him. And there was really a sense that 2020 was going to be kind of a quiet year for Saudi Arabia. I mean, they just took the presidency of the G20. MBS is incredibly proud to have this thing. I mean, for him, Saudi Arabia deserves to be up there with the big boys. He wants it to be a major player in the world. He wants it. He wants to stand on the same, same stage as Donald Trump and Emmanuel Macron and, and uh, Angela Merkel, and he believes he should be in the same league. And so here comes 2020. You know, they're going to host the G20 later this year in Riyadh of all, you know, for the first time in history. And, and then, you know, wham, they, he just, you know, sort of comes out with another one of these kind of crazy gambits that sends the world economy into a spiral. I wonder, Ben, how much could he have pulled off had Donald Trump not been, had there been a different president in the White House? Because I get the sense from your book that, you know, I mean, I don't get the sense. You say in your book, there's like this bond between Trump, especially Trump's son-in-law, Jared Kushner, and MBS, and an affinity between the two families, because they're sort of similar in their way, this little princeling and Kushner and the little princeling, you know, and MBS. And um, if a different administration was in the White House, would he have like messed with oil prices like this? And maybe, maybe not, maybe a different administration could have like put a stop to this? Well, it's a bit counterfactual. I mean, it's hard to imagine sort of what a Hillary Clinton administration would have done and how right. they would have related to MBS. And so I, you know, I don't want to speculate too much. What's clear is that Trump from the early days of the, of the administration basically decided this is a guy that I really like. Um, and I actually think it was kind of one of the, I think it's one of the most successful things that MBS did. He, you know, when, when, when Donald Trump won the election, there was no reason to believe that he was going to be a good friend to the Saudis. I mean, this was a guy who had a long and public record of saying nasty things about Muslims, saying some nasty things about Saudi Arabia, including in some of his debates with Hillary Clinton. And so, but the Saudis did a very smart thing. They sent a delegation to the East Coast. They met with a number of Trump's business associates. They met with Jared Kushner. They met with some of you know, some of his political associates just to try to figure out who are these people that are going to be moving into the White House. And the message they came back with was these guys are deal makers. They're not politicians. They're interested in the bottom line. 
They don't really know anything about the Middle East. They don't really know anything about Saudi Arabia. What they do know about in the Middle East is Israel. And then they very much crafted their approach to this administration based on what they found. And it ended up being wildly successful. And that has paid dividends to MBS since Trump came into the White House. That, you know, a number of things that he's done, Trump has been there to back him and has been there to protect him. And you've had over the last, last number of years, anger rising against Saudi Arabia and rising against MBS from various parts of the U.S. government. I mean, he got rid of Mohammed bin Nayef, who was one of the best friends of the CIA. You know, they've been working with this guy for years to fight al-Qaeda. And all of a sudden, MBS pushes him out of the way as crown prince and puts him under house arrest. And so, you know, there's one very important branch of the U.S. government that's ticked off at MBS. You, you know, you have the Yemen war, you know, you have it's been bipartisan in Congress. There's been multiple efforts to try to stop the arms sales to Saudi Arabia. They haven't quite worked yet, but it's an issue that keeps coming up. And you have lots of anger on both sides of the aisle that this war continues to go on using American arms. And Trump just is more than happy to keep selling the weapons. Jamal Khashoggi, you know, pretty much pissed off everybody across the entire government. But Donald Trump basically, you know, you know, he had this famous statement that he put out and he said, you know, maybe he didn't, maybe he didn't. We don't really know, and it doesn't matter anyway because he's so important to us that we're going to protect this relationship. So can I zoom back a little bit here? Because, again, it feels like a million years ago, but on Monday there was a huge plunge in all of the stock markets and oil markets and any other market you care to mention except for the treasury bond market. And um, and this was entirely a function of this, the, the breakdown of talks and the, and the decision by MBS to increase production. And so that was the the verdict of the markets was like this sharp decline in the oil price is a bad thing um economically I guess. Is that true? Is 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 low oil prices something that on an economic level uh we should think is is bad? Well bad bad for whom? I'm not well, I mean I guess right, bad right. I, I guess bad for us Americans. Ah, well, isn't it bad well, for the I, fracking it, industry? Yeah, I mean, I think this is where it's interesting because, you know, it used to be that you would almost always think, oh, well, low oil prices will almost serve as a stimulus because people will not be spending as much on oil. They can spend more on other things. However, now that the U.S. is like one of the biggest producers, it, it calculus changes a little bit. And I think then there's concern because it's not just the, you know, the shale producers. It's who holds their loans? Because these guys are, they have a lot of leverage. So then the concern is, okay, they start defaulting. And then, so I think that is where there's just a little bit more anxiety in the markets related. Plus, we can't even take advantage of all the cheap gas because we're all stuck at home. <laughs> well, yeah. And actually, that's that's actually not a bad point because this is the other thing. Normally, not a bad point. Yeah, no, it's a very good point. <laughs> um, normally, as I've said, you might think, okay, oil's low, then that'll get people to use more of it. They'll drive more, they'll do whatever. But when you have low oil at the same time that people almost can't take advantage of it, and at the same time as demand is declining, then that also suggests that the price is just going to continue to drop. I mean, there is a pretty clear um, causality between the um, coronavirus, like basically causing the collapse of the talks in, in Switzerland, that it was the coronavirus causes this global demand shock. You know, it causes people to want less oil, to need less oil. And so that forces Saudi and Russia to the negotiating table to say, how are we going to re react to this virus-related demand shock? Are we going to 
cut supply. And then obviously, as we now know, the answer was, was no, we're going to increase supply. But if it wasn't for that demand shock, probably that conversation would never have happened. It's hard to say. It's hard to say because obviously you have had the Saudis kind of trying to prop the price up. I mean, partly it was because you're, they were going to be taking Aramco public, right? But whereas Russia, you've had a little, they haven't wanted to cut back on production as much. Partly also because they're pissed at the U.S. because we're sanctioning Rosneft related to Venezuela. So I think they're also more so apt to be like, we, they, they don't want the price to stay higher because then that will help the U.S. shell producers. Another question I had is, how is this going to affect efforts to reduce the world's dependence on oil? Because um, we really don't need oil to be cheap because then there's less incentive yeah, to turn away from it. It's bad for the planet, right? I mean, like bad coronavirus is this this very temporary, we hope, um, you know, demand shock, which is going to be good for the planet. People are, you know, flying around less and emitting fewer carbon emissions in the short term, but in the medium term to long term, like number one, there's going to be this bounce back and probably like an overcompensation in terms of people doing a bunch of emitting that they didn't get to do back during the <laughs> era of the virus. And then also just given the expectations for extremely low oil prices for as far as the eye can see, that just makes alternative energy sources much less competitive and it makes it harder for you know people to decide to buy an electric car because suddenly gas driven cars seem much more attractive in comparison it's true although i would also say you will probably have a lot of economies that are right now you know crude producers start to think even more about the need to diversify this obviously goes back to saudi arabia this idea mm. that they, people can see moving forward if this is going to be this is going to be the price is going to be very low at the same time global warming is going to cause you know demand to decline even further there's also the possibility that people start to diversify away hello i'm Imi harper on the slow newscast from tortoise i tell the story of how a hong kong billionaire was silenced I got bombs thrown into my house. I got people camp here, ransack my computer. And I, I got people fractured me. I got this and that, but I'm safe. And what it reveals about the freedoms Hong Kong no longer enjoys. Listen to Hong Kong's Rebel Billionaire on the Slow Newscast, wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, I think we should talk about something which I suspect nearly all of us or most of many of us are going to be doing for the next few months which is working from home i know you have opinions about this emily i have so many opinions you have so many they opinions change. um it, this is a bit like my oil question like is is the low oil price good or bad is is working from home a good thing or is it a bad thing yes <laughs> <laughs> all right ben Correct. is it a good thing or a bad thing <laughs> uh, i think it's a good thing in moderation mm-hmm I think that's right. I have a list of cons and pros because I've I've been I've been really sitting alone in this room in my house, you know, for the past week working from home and I've been through some things mentally, I would say, at this point. <laughs> um so I mean the pros is that I have no commute. Usually my commute's very long. So for a lot of workers, that's more time where they could be more productive. I think in a lot of ways working from home is certainly more productive. 
On the other hand, working from home also seems to be less productive for me and probably for a lot of other people who work in somewhat creative industries where you want to be talking to colleagues and like have those like moments of serendipity where you sort of like come to an agreement or like come up with an idea or fix a problem. Like some things can be fixed in a minute person to person that take like forever if you're just, you know, meeting up on Slack or something. So that would be downside. Um, like it's harder to like maintain, I think Kevin Roos in his piece, and there are many pieces on the internet where you can read all about working from home. There's a lack of like, there's no like team cohesion, you know, you need to be able to function as teams. And that's, that becomes harder if you're not in person also. And this cannot be overstated. I think it's pretty lonely. (laughs) I miss my colleagues and like talking to people and stuff. I mean, this is an important thing, just even bigger than your productivity. Like you need to talk to people, right, Anna? I think you're completely right. Yeah, I <laughs> I really hate working from home for the most part. I had one year where I was basically freelancing and and I mostly had to work from home and I just Ugh. absolutely hated it. And as I said, I actually I don't go into my office on Fridays, but I go to a co-working space because I will not work from home because as you said, it's it's just yeah, we I do think that the loneliness factors into the low productivity and it, it just it's it's not ideal. And, and now, granted, I, I do want to be fair that especially if people have kids and especially if they have young kids, I do think that working from home can obviously be a really good thing and people or should have the opportunity to do it. No, I mean, this is Super the other bad. thing, like trying trying to like work and be productive and actually like get into like a flow state and do intelligent things with like a bunch of toddlers running around screaming is non-trivial. Well, no, but of course, like if you're working from home, you're going to have somebody watching the child. Of I'm not course. saying you would work. No, that's, I mean, it's not an of course, because like, and, and just because someone is watching the child doesn't mean they're not a distraction. Yeah, it's definitely not an of course during this crisis. Like everyone's freaking out right now because normally your kid would be at school, but all the, the schools are closing. So they'll be home from school and maybe you don't want to you know, maybe you don't put them in daycare because of out of fears of the virus or because the daycare is closed. And, you know, the, the person who comes to watch your kid maybe is sick. Like, there's no guarantee that there are people to watch the children. <laughs> so that's definitely a con, I'd say. I was somewhat counterintuitive. I mean, I, 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 I can be quite introverted and I actually love working from home when I can. But I think it can also be bad for your health in ways that you don't imagine. Um I mean, I, I sort of, you know, I got a very short book leave. I only had three months off work to finish doing this book, which meant that I spent a lot of time working on it while I was at, while I was also working as a full-time correspondent for the New York Times, which meant I spent a huge amount of time at my keyboard and my arms started hurting because I was just yeah. typing so much. And so, you know, the, and the, the problem is that with all of this you know, sort of working from home or, you know, you know, remote work and whatever, it basically pushes you back to your keyboard. I mean, I got to the point where I literally would think, how, how, how do I take time away from being at my keyboard today because the book is about the keyboard. You know, when I was no longer getting visas to Saudi Arabia, I was at the keyboard communicating with people on, you know, WhatsApp and other various encrypted messaging apps. I also cover Syria where I haven't been able to get visas, so I spend a lot of time messaging with people there. You know, and then all of a sudden, instead of going to talk to colleagues, I'm messaging with them. And then, you know, then my bosses say, well, everybody needs to be on Slack, which is yet more typing. And then by the end of the day, you're typing 12 hours a day, which, you know, can do all sorts of terrible things to your hands and arms. And you haven't spoken Whereas a word out loud. if you're in an office, loud. you can, you know, you want to walk, so, you know, you would need to talk to your boss. You walk over and you, you know, chat mm-hmm. for five minutes and you, you know, take care of what you need to take care of. There are other um, health issues too. My colleague, Dan Primack, who basically works from home, mentioned today on Twitter that the 
first rule of working from home is don't have too much food in the house because you just wind up, you know, you, that's what you do is you need to get up and walk around and the place you walk to is the fridge and you eat too much food. Meanwhile, like the first rule of like a pandemic is stock up on food. <laughs> and these like, you know, go straight against each other. <laughs> it's very that's true. We, we just can't win. <laughs> um, I, I do think that one of the main rules of thumb about working from home is like the richer and more privileged you are, the easier and better it is. Like if mm -hmm. if you have like a separate office where you can close the door and it has a nice big window and you have a nice view out the window and you have a pleasant computer and you're like and you can set things up in a very customized way and you have a, maybe a standing desk and all of this kind of stuff. It's like it's awesome. and It's probably a better setup than you have at the office in many ways. Whereas, you know, if you are stuck into an apartment with a whole bunch of different family members and roommates and everyone's running around and, you know, fighting and just being like human and behaving the way that most families behave in sort of typically family dysfunctional ways, it can just be incredibly distracting and hard. And, you know, the num just basic things like the number of square feet per person start becoming a huge, much more important than they ever were before. I agree with you. Definitely, Felix. My other thought was that I think we spoke a while ago about um, restaurants kind of starting to shut down and more people were doing like seamless and stuff. And um, I feel like there's something going on in the US, bear with me, where people are just becoming more isolated, like holding up with their laptops and watching Netflix instead of going to the movies, ordering from Seamless instead of going to restaurants, working from home instead of going to the office. And I feel like what's happening now is like a, an intensification of that trend. And I feel like it's making people more lonely and maybe it's bad. That's my theory. There's like, this is pushing an epidemic of loneliness that had been like quietly under the surface in the country for a long time. All right. We've solved all of the problems with working from home. Um, it means that we're going to get fatter and we're going to get lonelier. Fat and sad. And sadder. <laughs> But more productive. So, so that's that's the true the true legacy of the coronavirus is going to be a fat, <laughs> sad, and lonely country. <laughs> Wasn't that that's before the coronavirus? <laughs> Just making it worse. Why don't we have a numbers round? Ben, did you bring a number with you? I did, yeah. And it's uh, relevant to the week's news. $2.80. That is the cost to Saudi Aramco to get a barrel of oil out of the ground. Wow. $2.80, right? That's like, what kind of latte could you get for that? Now, you compare that to ExxonMobil, costs about $16, and Rosneft, oh, wow. about $20. So it's, it's a very, you know, it's a reminder that regardless of how we talk about sort of renewable energies, you know, end of oil, these sorts of things, as long as oil is a thing in the world, Saudi is going to be a player in it. And they, you know, when, when sort of the last barrel of oil is pulled from the earth, it could very well be Saudi Arabia that does it because it really costs them almost nothing. Their fiscal break-even price is actually significantly higher, though, because they need oil to balance their budget. So that actually is, is does play a big role. It's actually significantly higher than the fiscal break-even price for Russia. I don't know what that means. Like the, the overhead for Aramco in terms of pulling an oil a, a barrel of oil out of the ground in terms of like what you need in terms of oil derricks and that kind of thing is low. But the overhead in terms of being able to keep all of those crown princes in or princes rather in, in yeah. like well-paid jobs and, and Bentleys is much higher. 
Right, and I think right now the the break even price for the current Saudi economy for the current Saudi budget, I believe, is around eighty dollars, and right. so we're definitely well, well below that at this point. My question is: Is oil cheaper than Purell right now? <laughs> <laughs> if only there were untapped Purell reserves. Although there are, you know, I mean, I have to say, Andrew Cuomo managed to find a whole bunch of untapped Purell reserves. And you know where he found them? In the prisons. Um, The Mm. governor of New York is using prison labor to make hand sanitizer, which honestly I don't disapprove of. Felix. What? They're not being paid very well. Also, I don't think they're allowed to use hand sanitizer in prison, so it just seems kind of gross, right? I mean, that's true. I'm not 100% we should, sure. we should definitely allow hand sanitizer into prisons. We yes. don't want prisons to we be definitely allow hand major vectors prison. of disease or any other place where a bunch of people are cooped up in close contact. Should have lots of hot running water and soap and hand sanitizer. That's a no brainer. Um, my number is two billion, which I'm going to throw in here just to sort of close the loop on the conversation that we had with Anna last week um, about. Twitter and innovation. The the fight with between Twitter and Elliot Associates got settled. And um the fight that I was having with Anna was like, you know, can Twitter just keep on going as it is? And she was like, no, it needs to innovate. It needs to grow. And she was taking and she was like <laughs> trying to explain what the what the hedge fundy types were com- coming and saying. The fight got settled with an agreement by Twitter to Grow and innovate? No, with an agreement by Twitter to spend $2 billion on a stock buyback, because that is apparently how you get growth and innovation these days. That's a fair point. That is very typical activist behavior, which is like, I know what you can do, a stock buyback. <laughs> Anna, that's it? Remember? That's how it ends? That's so boring. Yeah, that, that's how it ends. Jack Dorsey remains the CEO. He doesn't go to Africa, and he agrees to do a $2 billion stock buyback. Brilliant. Well, my number is 15%, which as of the last time I looked on a Thursday, so this has probably changed almost certainly by the time you're hearing this, was how much Brazil's equity index, the Bovespa, had declined. I just want to say like... That's in one day. In one day. Yeah, that's not from the highs. No, 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 no. This year, it's down like 35%. It is... They have the worst performing equity index in dollar terms. They have the worst performing currency. Their terms of trade are rapidly deteriorating. Like, of all of the relatively major countries that are being hit by this, Brazil's being hit maybe the worst. Is it good or bad that their president probably has coronavirus? (laughs) I shouldn't laugh. But well, no, but actually, this is the thing. They're also, if you think we're being run by a crazy person, and we are, they are also really being run by a complete crazy person. He sent a comedian to one of his press conferences last week in his place just to like mess with the reporters. He like, he's nuts. And that I imagine people don't have a tremendous amount of faith in his ability to get through this crisis. Emily? My number is 14. That is the number of days of emergency sick pay that um, are being proposed by Democrats in the House and the Senate in a big bill they're trying to get through to do something to help with the economic fallout of the coronavirus. And in one of the bills, I'm really excited because they also tried to sneak in like a permanent paid sick leave bill. And um, listeners will know that I'm obsessed with paid leave in the United States. And um, the one kind of upside to me from this whole crisis is people are really paying attention to this issue right now. And there's 
kind of a possibility that we'll either get at least this emergency provision so that workers, hourly workers who don't have paid leave and low-income workers who don't get it can actually stay home when they're sick and, and still get some money and um, maybe even have it as a permanent part of U.S. policy. Yay. Okay. Yay. Yay for sick leave. <laughs> Let's hope that the you know House Republicans don't veto it. Um, well, I mean, the House Republicans... They'll probably veto it, but they don't matter because they don't have a majority. It's those janky uh, it's the, it's, senators. It's, it's, the, jan- it's the janky senators. Let's hope that Susan Collins comes through on it. Uh, <laughs> yeah. um, um, on which note, um, let's wrap this one up for another week. Thank you so much, Ben Hubbard, for coming on this show all the way from Beirut, Lebanon. I think you're the most remote, remote guest that we've had. Um, thank you, Jasmine and Molly, for producing. Thank you for like all of the extra work and activity that is required to put a remote podcast together. And thank you, listeners, for keeping the emails coming on slatemoney at slate.com. We will talk to you next week on Slate Money. <laughs>